Good afternoon to the rest of you. It's quite a bit wetter this week than last week. That's a good thing. Let's take our Bibles this afternoon, and uh, once again, they should just about flop open to uh, Ephesians chapter 6. And let's uh, look once again at verses 13 through 18. Ephesians chapter 6, we'll begin in verse 13. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness. And your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. May God add a special blessing to the reading of his word, and let us just pause for prayer prior to our study this afternoon. Father God, again, we thank you for the day that we can be a part of as we come together to worship, to praise your name. We ask you that you especially be with those that have come out this afternoon, that you would be with them, their families. Raise them up, Father. Give them encouragement, understanding, and Father, even today that the words that we have read and that you will take us to in the Word of God, we would ask that those would relationally bring us closer to you than we've ever been. Father, we pray for those that were not able to be here today, that, again, you would wrap your arms around them. Show them your love. Lift them up. And, Father, may truth prevail as well as justice in our world today. We ask that the Holy Spirit would lead and guide us and teach us exclusively today. And we look with anticipation for what you will do today. We lean on and rest and trust in you. For there's no greater place for us to be than at the feet of yourself, humbly bowing, adoring, and lifting up on high. May you be glorified, and Father, may we be raised up and encouraged. Thank you for what you'll do now. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, this is, uh, I'm not sure of a fifth or sixth time that we've been together in studying in Ephesians about putting on the whole armor of God. Uh, Today we come to the third piece of the armor, if you will, the shoes. Uh, As it says in verse 15, that your your feet be shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. It sounds a little bit complicated, but before we even get into that, well, first of all, again, just to make known and to understand the fact that we are in a war, there's no question about that. It's a spiritual warfare. It's not something that we can even see literally, but it's amazing when you look at the sides of what's going on. Uh, Jesus revealed truth when he was here on earth. In fact, in John chapter 1, verse 17, he said he was full of grace and truth. We also know from John chapter 8 that Satan conceals truth. He's the father of of lies. He's never told anything but a lie, actually. To think of that, uh, pretty amazing. We also know that Jesus Christ gives life. From John chapter, maybe we'll just take and turn to the book of John for a moment and find some of these verses yourselves, um, looking at the contrast between uh, uh, Jesus Christ particularly and Satan. Uh, Jesus gave life in John chapter 5, verse 24. 
as we just alluded to, he said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. He literally gives life. Then back over to John chapter 8, verse 44, we just spoke of the fact that uh, Satan is a liar, but he's also a murderer. Uh, John chapter 8, verse 44, you are of your father, the devil, the lusts of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth, for there is no truth in him. So you see the contrast, not in concealing truth, but also stealing life. John chapter 8, verse 36, literally Jesus is giving freedom. If the Son, verse 36, chapter 8, if the Son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Satan enslaves. Tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 26, that he literally enslaves people. Uh, Jesus actually defends us. He's our advocate in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, and we know that Satan accuses, Revelation 12, 10. Jesus produces spiritual fruit and Satan produces fleshly fruit. You can find the differences in those in Galatians chapter 5. So it's, it, the more you study and the more you see, you can see that on one side of the ledger, you have Satan doing a tremendous job of trying to counteract and to contrast everything that Jesus has died for and given us the ability and the power to, to do. So the question is, how do we get victory over Satan? He's not someone that you can see. Um, if you were out going to go out and search for him, you would not find him in the sense of literally seeing him. But he's there, and his demons, his helpers are there. The world system actually is something that he uses to try to defeat uh, people all of the time. So just a few notes as we maybe review, but it also puts us in the context of where we're going to be going today. Uh, how to have victory over Satan. The first thing is, it's very, very important, is the fact that we recognize that Christ has already defeated him. Turn to 1 John for a moment. Just go uh, to 1 John chapter 3. Um, sometimes uh, we forget the fact that the victory for the war has already been past judgment. Jesus Christ, in chapter 3 of 1 John, verse 8, it says this, He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning for this purpose. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested or made known, made shown, that he might destroy the works of the devil. He's been defeated. In Hebrews chapter 2, it also reiterates that. James, I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Turn with me to there. Hebrews 2, verse 14, it says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. In other words, he became all human, all God, all human, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of the death, that is, the devil. He's been beaten. He has been defeated. That's a great place for victory to begin in the fact that Christ has conquered him. Number two is, even equally as important, is the fact that the power that defeated Satan resides in you. If you've accepted Christ as your Savior, then literally the very power of which God defeated Satan lives within you. We've went to this verse before, but turn with me back to 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. I always like to, for you to see it in your Bibles because this gives confidence to you uh, at times when you need it. 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, um, John the Apostle is speaking to those that he's writing to, and he says, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. 
the power that defeated Satan literally resides in you. That's something to, to dwell on, to be ever conscious of. Uh, the third thing we need to keep in mind is we're having victory over Satan is the fact that let's go to First Peter, First uh, Peter chapter five, and he's uh, encouraging and uplifting those that he's written to. Those were actually suffering saints at that time. First Peter chapter five, and he says very aptly toward the end of this letter, verse eight and nine: Be sober. That is to be alert, to be vigilant. To be prepared, to be ready, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the face, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. Uh, be alert, resist him, because you have that available power. Now, the question is, how do we resist? Maybe that's a question that you have. Well, that sounds great, Larry, but how in the world, uh, the alert part, we know that right now we need to be alert and prepared, but how do we resist him? What does that look like? Well, here's a verse that we've, we've mentioned, but one that you need to be very careful to keep in your memory is Ephesians chapter 4. Turn there, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27. Ephesians 4, verse 27. We'll preface that with verse 26. It's, uh, as many of you know, that it, it's sometimes easy to become angry. And the question is, what are you angry about? But watch this. Ephesians chapter 5, verse, I'm sorry, chapter 4, verse 26, it says, Be ye angry and sin not. So in other words, you can be angry and sin not, but let not the sun go down upon your wrath, and it has a colon. Why? Neither give place to the devil, Period. Um, if, you, if you let anger get out of control and to last too long, literally then bitterness or some other sense of that carrying on will allow Satan then to have a beachhead, to have a place for him to do business, a place for him to literally have a place to work. He's, he can be active literally within your very space, if you will. So part of, him, part of that to resist is not giving him a place to operate from. Keep him at a distance. Uh, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Uh, there's another aspect to this. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11. We're not only to not to give him a place, but we should beware of his devices. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and in verse 11. Peter is, I'm sorry, Paul is writing to the Corinthians about forgiveness. And when someone is not forgiven, at verse 11 it says clearly, lest Satan should get an advantage of us. That'd be the last thing we would need to do is to give him an advantage. For we are not ignorant of his devices. What are his devices? How does, how does he work? What are the things that he literally brings to our attention, that uses to take us, to make us go down, uh, shall we say, temptation alley and, and taking control of the situation? Well, the scripture speaks of three different avenues um, that he works from. And it's amazing how many times he will use them in conjunction with one another. Uh, turn with me back to 1 John chapter 2 and verse 16. 1 John chapter 2, and we'll start in verse 15. These three verses particularly, 15, 16, 17, are very influential in understanding the three avenues of susceptibility to temptation and literally how Satan works. Verse 15 of 1 John chapter 2 says this, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, we're talking about not the planet. We're talking about the world system. Verse 16, for all that is in the world, that is, watch now, the lust of the flesh, 
The lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. So there's three avenues, if you will. There's, there's three ways that Satan will attack you to get to your gateways, if you will. The first was described as the lust of the flesh. And those would be literally, quite honestly, the negative cravings of a sinful heart. Uh, you, you will uh, basically, it's acting upon bodily impulses, impulses of the mind, any attitude, thought, word, or action that God forbids uh, and that we cling on to. And that's within the very depths of our heart. Uh, one way of actually thinking about it is the world system is literally just the outside of what really we have with the inside of who we are apart from Jesus Christ. It's wanting what we want and when we want it and caring less, could care less about what God has to say about it. Well, that's uh, self-gratification, sensuality. We're not just talking about immorality. We're talking about those things that literally are so ingratiating that we, ha- we can't hardly really stay away from them. They, they, they pull us in through just literally um, that sense of self-service, self-gratification. The second uh, one that he speaks of is the lust of the eyes. The lust of the eyes. Not only is really literally uh, our body itself through feelings, through emotions, through uh, thoughts, those kind of cravings that the world system is continually launching upon us, but also through the gateway of the eyes. Now, thinking of a couple of examples of that, uh, remember Lot's wife. She couldn't keep her eyes off of Sodom and Gomorrah. And actually lost her life. Turn with me to Joshua chapter 7. You'll see this in effect in a man by the name of Achan. Let's go to Joshua chapter 7. And you will see how exactly this played out in his life. Joshua chapter 7. And we'll see that it was a, they had just crossed over, Joshua and, the, and his army, those people that were moving into the promised land. And they had just won the victory at Jericho. A tremendous victory. And uh, they were going to Ai next and went with a great deal of confidence. However, when they went there, they went unprepared, if you will, in speaking before God. And they basically were defeated rather easily. And we find in Joshua chapter 7, in verse 6, that after that, Joshua rent or tore his clothes, fell to the earth upon his face before the ark of the Lord, even until even time that he and the elders of, the, of Israel had put dust upon their heads. He is broken by the fact, wait a minute, what, what went wrong, God? Why did we lose? What, what, what went on here? I mean, you told us, uh, you know, we're, this is a promised land. We're going to go here. We had a great victory in Jericho. Ai is the next one in line. We go there and we literally get our butts kicked. What went wrong? What's the deal? And you'll find through the next several verses that literally uh, God says there's sin in the camp. And it's amazing how it gets all sorted down to these uh, several million people and we get down to this guy by the name of Achan. Let's turn down to uh, verse 19. Joshua chapter 7, verse 19. Joshua said unto Achan, my son, give, I pray thee, glory to the Lord God of Israel and make confession unto him and tell me now what thou hast done. Hide it not from me. And Achan answered Joshua and said, verse 20, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and thus and thus have I done. Now watch carefully. Verse 21. When I saw among the spoils a goodly Babylonish garment and 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold of 50 shekels weight, then I coveted them and took them. 
And behold, they are hid in the earth in the midst of my tent and the silver under. Now, that's pretty much a great way to see the lust of the eyes. His eyes, they saw it, they coveted, and they took. Now, sin follows that description almost every single time. And the, th- the funny part to me, well, by the way, I forgot to tell you that after they came out of Jericho, they were not supposed to take anything. Okay? That was, the Lord directed it very clearly through Josh. Now, don't take anything. This is God's stuff. Well, Achan couldn't stand it. He looked, he coveted, he took. Now, the part that's really odd to me is the fact, what he really wanted and coveted after, he couldn't ever have out in public. Because he wasn't supposed to have it. So he saw it, he coveted, he took it, and then he hid it. <laughs> but he didn't hide it from God. That is exactly, though, what we would be talking about in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, in the sense of lust of the eyes. We can think of Samson. His eyes, literally, in fact, at the end, would, would have led him to all types of immorality, but it was his eyes at the very end of his life that actually were taken from him. We think of David as he was standing on the rooftop of, of, the, of the palace and what would have brought a, a, an adulterous affair with Bathsheba, lust of the eyes. Lust of the outward appearance, it's a form of covetousness to, to take what is not yours and desiring what others have. Uh, envy, jealousy, all of those things would fall underneath of that. Now, those first two, you can see that covers a wide range of literally how Satan can work in the sense of attacking us. But the third one we found in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 is the pride of life. What in the world is the pride of life? That's a desire to be better than anyone else. It's literally a desire to make your life more important than anyone else. It's a sense of self-exaltation, a, a truly a picture of pride. And who was the most successful of that was Satan himself. As he was created, and one day he decided, I'm going to be just like God. I'm going to be just like him. In fact, I'm going to be better than him. It's a sense of defying God. It's seeking to glorify oneself. Now, interestingly enough, if we went back to Genesis chapter 3, just we'll look briefly here. Genesis chapter 3, you will actually see each one of those aspects, each one of those avenues that Satan attacked on that day, that glorious, that unglorious day when literally sin entered into the human race. And let's watch it in verse, uh, let's go to chapter 3, and we'll read the story once again. But I want you to think of, of this, this whole concept of what First John talks about in literally the avenues that Satan uses. Now the serpent, verse 1 of chapter 3 of Genesis, was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said that you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. It was probably the first question that had ever been asked, quite honestly. That's interesting. Now, wait a minute. What, what would make her... What, what, is she, what, do, you, what, do, you, what do you mean now? I'm, I'm not sure I follow that. Well, he raises the question, you know, God's holding out on you. He's holding out on you. There's something that he's probably not wanting you to have. How many times have I heard that, even in the young people, you know, for instance, oh, that, why can't I do... Yeah, and there's a whole lot of stuff that comes rolling out of that baby, isn't there? Now, of course, she has, at this, all he's done is he's set up within her mind, you know, I don't know if God is really someone you can trust. He's holding out on you. Why would he tell you not to eat of that tree? Has, did he really say that, by the way? Is he really holding out on you? And all of a sudden, you can almost get a sense, do you see the lust of the flesh? There's a desire. In fact, let's keep going and we'll see it unfold even further. 
And she responded by saying, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now, God did not say anything about touching it. He just said, don't eat of it. But the point of the matter is, it even makes it more restrictive. You know, now that I think about it, God didn't let us eat of it. He probably doesn't even want us to touch it. So how restrictive could he possibly be? God doesn't want us to enjoy the fruit of that tree. She's, she's bought in, hasn't she? And then he's wide open now. He says in verse 4, I, I, he said, if, then lest you die. He goes right against it, and he basically says God's a liar. He said unto the woman, you shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day you eat of it, then your eyes will be opened, and you shall be as God's, knowing good and evil. Oh, he's laid it out now. In fact, watch what, how she responds now. So far, she, she is gullible. She's been taken, but she hasn't sinned. Until literally verse 6. And it's just like, oh, you talk about a Pandora's box. I like that, actually, because it's, it's, it's fully, she has not even contemplated the consequences of what's about to take place. Well, watch this now, the, her reactions. She says in verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food. Now, how many times do you think she had walked past that tree? To, it was not necessary. How short of food were they? Were they in a famine? Was this the only tree left? Was this the one, in other words, God said, no, I don't want you to ever eat of that tree even if you're starving to death. No. No, they didn't have any. There were no necessities that weren't being met. But now all of a sudden, did you see what she wanted? She wanted that fruit from that tree because she couldn't have it. That's one of the things I found with kids even. Just go ahead and mention you can't have that or you can't do that. I mean, they are drawn to it, correct? <laughs> In fact, that's, it's best not to even say anything about it. But if you do, and that's exactly the way Eve was right now. She, for the first time, saw, wait a minute. I'm thinking, I think God is not really being fair here. Why would he do that? And all of a sudden, there's a yearning, there's a desire, there's a lust for that fruit on that tree just because she wanted it. Even though God, now, it was clear, it was clear, don't make, make no mistake about this, she knew what God had said. In fact, she added to it, even making it a bit more restrictive. So the lust of the flesh, literally a craving, had come out, but then it goes on to say, and that it was pleasant to the eyes. Did you see that? The lust of the eyes. It looked good. It looked good. It looked like great fruit to have. And... The lust of the eyes, not only, but it says, and a tree to be desired to make one wise. What would that be? The pride of life. I mean, if I could be like God. And, and Adam is, he's, he's bought in too, by the way. He's just as, he is just as guilty as anyone. In fact, he, I think he's watching. He's taking the, he's, he's right there. Because she gave to him. It says, and he said, that's a great idea. Think of that now. And I don't think they recognize, this is the other thing that's so so deadly about sin in the sense of the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is it's so sinister you don't even know what's happened to you until later. It wasn't until later that they really understood. It wasn't a lot later, but it's like anything. Look, look, at, look at Achan. When he saw, he took, he hid, or I'm sorry, missed one, missed one real important one. He saw, he coveted, he took, he hid. I wonder what, what Adam and Eve knew about it. Satan said that you will know, you will be, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. I wonder, what their, in their frame of mind at that point, if they knew good and evil, what, what that was even... I don't even think they caught that. They understood I don't, that. No, I don't think. The good and evil part? They didn't have any idea. They didn't know what evil was. No. But they heard the part they could be like God. 
That's, that's been selling for generations. That's been going on for, I was going to say centuries. How about thousands of years? Yeah. yeah. But them knowing, I don't think that was, gee, I, I really wish I could tell the difference between good and evil. The only thing they knew about was literally good. And now if they would have taken a step back, taken a time out, and, and Eve would have said, wait a minute, wait a minute. What do you mean not good? God's not good to us? Look what he's done for us. See, this is why we need to continue to remind ourselves continually what God has done for us. When we understand what he, and we can't understand it fully, but for him to send Jesus Christ to this earth, live for 33 years, speak of truth, tell of truth, and then he died for truth, is buried and risen again, can you, and that we can go free. That's amazing. When we continue to remind ourselves of this, guess what? For us to come up with anything and the fact that God is holding out us is not even reality. That's what Eve didn't do. That's right out of the box. That's what Satan will try to do is God is holding out on you. He is not being completely fair. He's being restrictive. He's not letting you have things that you deserve. And once he has you there, it's, it's just like opening the floodgate, correct? And that's really where he started with her. Now, when, when it, you, know, you think of what, why would you want to be like God? Well, just look at how humans respond today. They always, want, they always want to do their own thing. That's what's wrong with America today, right? We don't worship God anymore. We just worship self in every way. And there's a whole lot of self-worshippers, and we have a whole lot of messed up people right now, don't we? That's an avenue that he uses, the pride of life. Think of that. Almost every single sin will follow down those three avenues, every single one of them. So our goal is how can we ward those off? Understanding his devices. Well, that's what those devices literally would be. Yes. There are certain, there's certain, yeah, there certainly are things there that the scripture is clear in Second Corinthians chapter eleven verse three. It does not say that Satan beguiled Adam and Eve. It says that he beguiled Eve. Okay. Now again. The, the level of that emotion between the two, I don't know that anyone really knows, but the point of the matter was, Scripture is very clear in the New Testament, that Eve was deceived. Okay? Now, Adam was deceived in the sense that he took of what she offered him. He should have said, no, I can't. no, that's wrong. Now, the other thing is, this is the part that really God had made Adam the head of the family. His responsibility was to look after his wife, Eve. When Satan would have approached her, and we have no reason not to believe that he's not right there. He's literally in that place. He needed to step forward, and he needed to, and especially, particular. here's, here's the first thing. When truth was not clearly stated by Eve back to the serpent. In other words, God said, we can't eat of it, nor can we touch it. And he should have said, honey, that's not what was said. God said, don't eat it. And by the way, honey, he has given everything we need to be perfectly happy and content in this garden. And by the way, why don't you take a hike? See, that was his role. He failed to do that. So now what he's done, actually in a subservient way, saying, well, I suppose I better just do this so we're together. Isn't that amazing? That's called peer pressure. I would, that's really what I'd say Adam succumbed to was peer pressure. And we have been doing that ever since. Do you, do you see how basic Satan is? He doesn't, even, he doesn't even waver. We know from the very beginning of how he operates, and he still does it that way. Isn't it amazing? But I will say this. Now, after that point going forward, uh, Adam and Eve had, there's a sense of innocence that we've never had. We don't know what it's like not to be in sin. In fact, in, in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, it tells us that by sin through one man, sin entered the world. We have been born into that. 
They never were, but I can't imagine just moments after that knowing what would have happened. I don't know what that would have possibly been like. I don't have a clue. But the point of the matter is, is that whole sin thing, he just sells it the same way, ultimately. And the world system is built to attract the things that are within our inner heart. Romans chapter 7. That's another, Read that once in a while. Just write it in your notes. Romans chapter 7 because Paul is speaking so, I'm going to say so transparently. He's the apostle of apostles and he says, uh, I do what I don't want to do and I can't do what I want to do. That's the battle going on within us. In fact, to send, this is a, I don't want to go too far down this train, but one of the last things that God literally will prove to all of mankind for all ages in the millennium is when you have a perfect environment jesus christ is ruling and reigning it's a theocracy he is fully and completely in charge you are punished for evil immediately and there's not even a sense that there's that much but the point is it is as good a thousand year reign as you could possibly imagine and satan is locked up that's the only time that he's been bound in fact we're never told to bind satan we're not capable of that it was an angel that bound him in a bottomless pit for 1,000 years. And at the very end of that, he's loosed. And literally, with it would get the sense in within moments that people rebelled with him against God. Now, think of where did that come from? That didn't come from advertising. That didn't come from bad leadership. That didn't be being born on the wrong side of the tracks. That literally was the fact from the inner depths of our heart. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. The heart is desperately wicked. The mind is desperately wicked. Who could know it? And that's what Jesus Christ died for. And that's what should keep us watching for those avenues. Because we know what he died for. And if he didn't have to die, he wouldn't have. If there was any other way, do you think God would have literally sent Jesus Christ to die? Not a chance. Think of that. It's powerful stuff. Powerful stuff. Okay, let's go back to... uh, not only what you know as devices, but let's look at Second uh, Timothy uh, chapter 2, our response when we see these avenues unfold. The best thing that Eve could have done was taken off running in the other direction. Second Timothy chapter 2, <laughs> verse 22. Flee also, it says in verse 22, Second Timothy chapter 2, flee also youthful lust, but follow righteousness. Faith, charity, peace with them that call on the Lord out of pure heart. There's a time to literally flee temptation, particularly youthful lusts, immorality. But where does this all start? See, as a far fact now, we're talking about identifying um, those avenues, those devices that he uses. But let's go back, and this is a, a verse that, again, you need to continually have in your repertoire of understanding is where this starts. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and take, let, let's take a look at verses 3, 4, and 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and we will look at verse 3. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, in other words, we're walking in human bodies, we're walking amongst people, we see we do not war after the flesh. This war that we're in, this spiritual war, is nothing to do with what we can see. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not fleshly, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Now watch verse 5. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God. And this is, the fu- this is the point. And bringing into captivity, literally capturing every thought to the obedience of Christ. Literally every thought must be taken captive. 
to obey Christ. That is the key, key component in having victory over Satan. Now you say, well, wait a minute. How do you have victory over... You know what? You know those thoughts sometimes. and You have to stop yourself in midst. Why am I thinking about that? I'm going to stop that. In fact, the counteractive to that is in Philippians chapter 4. It just came to my mind. Let's go to Philippians chapter 4. And this would be, once you have those, when you, and you've all had them, they're, they're just out of nowhere. Where did that come from? Have you ever had those moments? Well, sure you have. Yeah, Philippians chapter 4, but it's a conscious decision uh, as we go. And this is interesting how we're talking about the shoes, the preparation of the gospel of peace. Look at this in verse 7, Philippians chapter 4, verse 7. Now watch carefully. And the peace of God, we'll be talking about that in a moment. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. Verse 8, now watch. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. If you, if you would take all the stuff that you think about and if it fit in those categories, you know what? I'm going to tell you something. You're going to have peace and you're going to have power. That's a place to go. And sometimes midstream, I don't know what, what it is, but some, just it's an onslaught. I say it's through some of those avenues just from the world as it hits your head or comes right into your, to your gateways of, of, of how you react and think. There's, there's a thought and you say, what? Where did that come from? I need to stop that right now. And don't dwell. Just boom, by the blood of Jesus Christ, leave. I want to think about this. And you start reading a verse. Uh, go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 5. Every thought, that thought needs to be taken and held captive for the obedience of Christ. That's literally a hands-on weaponry to go forward. So let's go back and, and just very momentarily speak about the two things that we spoke of in the last two weeks as putting on the whole armor of God, which is described for us in Hebrew, Ephesians chapter 6, the belt of truth. Uh, in, in a couple of words, tell me what the belt of truth, what's the significance behind that as we spoke on that two weeks ago? Putting on the belt of truth. What's the idea behind it? Commitment to be prepared And I'm going to even say this, being ready to be committed. And once that belt of truth is on, you don't take it off. Staying committed to all. Don't ever let up. Staying committed. Being ready to fight the fight of truth. And then last week we looked at the breastplate of righteousness. If you don't mind, let's uh, let's read another, almost a corollary of Ephesians chapter 6. Let's turn back to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. And we'll start in verse 11. And this is literally the same picture that Paul has painted for us in Ephesians chapter 6, except he's using that uh, analogy of a soldier. Here we are in Romans chapter 13, verse 11, putting on the breastplate of righteousness. Here we go. And that knowing the time, verse 11, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. That would be like putting on the belt of truth. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. Each day that goes by is one day closer to our, our eternal life being unfolded and being all that it could be. Verse 12, the night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. That's exactly what Ephesians 6 is talking about. Verse 13, let us walk honestly, again, putting on the belt of truth as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put you on, 
the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Literally, that verse right there, putting on the breastplate of righteousness from Ephesians chapter 6, and this, not making provision for the flesh, is really literally getting rid of the garbage and living in the light. So the third piece, now, so far, you're thinking, well, I've got my belt on, and... Uh, and I've got my breastplate of righteousness. I'm living practically what was imputed to me. And we, we had all of that board stuff last week. And so far, nothing's got up there. But it may. We'll see how it goes. But now we're going to talk about something that sometimes we forget about. If, in fact, uh, even within, a, I'm thinking of a football player now. You know, you think of them, they have shoulder pads on. They got padding. I mean, they got, they got stuff. And very, by the way, their jerseys are very tight. Why? So that someone can't reach out and grab them. You want to be, it wants to be tight clad. But one thing that not a lot of thought is thought about, because you don't really look at it or see it, is, their, is their, their shoes. Their shoes. There's been off, a lot of opportunities in any sport, actually, but in football particularly, because you'll be on different, different turfs, particularly in professional or co- collegiate uh, um, rankings. And if you have the wrong shoes for the wrong conditions, you will look really bad. <laughs> in fact, there was a... I think it might have been John MacArthur even. He spoke of the fact that in the Rose Bowl, when he was in college football, he played college football, and he was trying to determine, in fact, he said sometimes the grass really wasn't very good, so they would go out and paint the dirt so it looked like grass, so it was green, okay? And it had rained a lot, and they were just trying to figure out what should, you know, what, you know, and by the way, there are a lot of decisions on, for a lot of things, not the least of which is what's the turf like? How, what do I need for footwear? Because I'm going to tell you something. The footwear may be as important as anything. Because you could, be, you could be fit. You could be ready for anything. Upper body strength. You could have everything you need. But if you can't stand and move, you're dead meat. Well, in this particular day, John, uh, he went with the short cleats because he was going to take off. He was a kickoff return guy. And it was the opening play. And he could have put on his long, you know, the, the clunky ones, as I think he described it, the ones that had a lot of spike and would have taken a bad field condition. But he said, no, I think I'm going to go for speed. <laughs> the opening kickoff in the Rose Bowl, he received at the four-yard line, and he says, I just did a whoop, a slip in the air, and out I am, and there's 21 guys looking at me. It's never even touched me because I wasn't prepared for the conditions. Now, that's exactly what we look like in the Christian life if we don't have on what is described for us as the shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace. You have to have the right shoes. Now, uh, the other thing is uh, we think of, uh, you know, warfare today and you think of those, um, oh, my mind just went blank, but those, uh, oh, those, those kind of like landmines or there's, what is it, EIDs? Okay, you know, treacherous things, absolutely treacherous. And, and they're on a more sophisticated scale. But let's go back into the time and age and when Paul would have written this about the Roman soldiers. Um, the fact of the matter, they could literally do a lot of damage to an oncoming army. And they would bury sharp sticks as they would be coming that way so that they would literally, you know, cut, maim, point, uh, poke their feet. To the, and you, you show me a soldier that, that is not able to walk or move adequately, you have just lost that person in the battle. That is really, really the key component I want you to see. If you don't have your feet prepared, you are subject to a complete loss. Okay? And Paul is giving that picture very clear. Now, a Roman soldier, he would have had shoes, uh, and I 
say that carefully, they weren't nearly the level of which we have today, but they would have been made out of, my understanding, three different layers of leather. They were pretty thick. And then on the inside, on the, uh, you know, I would say from the top side down, they would drive nails through them, hobnails, so that they had spikes. And if you think about it, as you're going hand-to-hand combat, you have to have traction. You have to be able to, to be there. Or can you imagine a Roman soldier showing up for battle in bare feet? That would be easy, right? The other, that other, his opposing enemy, how easy could that be? Now think of this. If you take peace away, well, I need, I need to break this down a little bit further, but it's a good time to talk about it. If you take peace away from a Christian, what have you got? Someone that's slipping all over the place. They're falling down. They don't know where they're at. In fact, did you see the first thing that Satan did with Eve was to cast doubt about God. And you show me someone that does not have peace, they're open to worry, anxiety, all the things that literally have you slipping around. You can't. And what's our goal in chapter 6 of Ephesians? Stand firm. That's how you resist it. You don't chase after me. Go look for him. He's going to come to you, especially if you're a Christian or living a life. But you're to stand firm. And to do that, you have to have rock-solid footing and foundation. Where does that come from? Well, let's break this word down. Let's, first of all, preparation. Now, let's, let's go back to Ephesians chapter 6 for a moment. And let's unfold this one word at a time. Ephesians chapter 6. And we'll look at verse 15 once again. And your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Now, that word preparation, just let it be exactly what it is. In other words, you need to be ready to have your feet shod or to have this footwear on it's just that simple preparation is the fact of being prepared i mean have it on don't don't mess around and then we see the gospel of peace the gospel of peace what in the world is he talking about the gospel of peace well let's go to uh, romans chapter 5 romans chapter 5 and we're going to first of all look at our condition prior to being saved or trusting Christ. Romans chapter 5, we'll start in verse 6. And I want you to, as we're, we're going to read verses 6 through 10, and then we're going to go back and we're going to define how the scriptures see mankind. Uh, Romans chapter 5, now here's verse 6. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. Verse 10. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So if you look in verse 6, you find, first of all, that we were without strength, so we were weak. Let's just write these down. It will help us to see our condition. So first of all, in verse 6, we were weak. Okay? Uh, In verse 7, we find the fact that We, verse 7, it says, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. So it's it's fairly clear then that we were unrighteous. Okay? We were unrighteous. Verse 8, which would be number 3 to us. Verse 8 says, But God commanded his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners. So we were sinners. This isn't looking very good, is it? How are you doing on on your balance sheet? Uh, well, we've got some good stuff going on. It looks like we're weak, we're unrighteous, and we're sinners. 
What's, what's going to happen next? Well, let's look at verse 9. It says that much more being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved. I'm sorry, did I miss one? No, that's right. We shall be saved from the wrath through him. We're unjustified. We are unsaved. I'm going to go ahead and say unjustified. Now, that word justified would mean to be declared not guilty. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's the sense of... Uh, no, I'm going I'm I'm to... Let me just think about that for a second. Uh, to be justified is, is that, that very thing, to be declared not guilty. Not guilty, and not just today, but for eternity, because Jesus Christ justified. We're going to get that to just in a moment. But verse 10, there's another thing that he talks about. He says that we were enemies. Enemies. Now, let's take this all into perspective. So we have five things stated in five verses about us. Anyone that is without Christ, you're weak, you're unrighteous, you're a sinner, you're unjustified, and you're enemies of Enemies? Enemies of whom? Of God. That sounds really bad. This does not sound good. It sounds like we've got big, bad trouble. Big, bad trouble. So, Larry, I thought, I thought you were talking about the, the, the gospel of peace. That doesn't look very good. You're right. At this point right here, see, this is the picture, really, that God is trying to lay out for. That's why God's word was written, so that we could see our position. This is coming clean. This is transparency. This is what Satan doesn't want you to know. He doesn't want you to know this side of the ledger. He said, I don't really want to know it. Exactly. But until you know this, you don't know you need a Savior. And that's the most critical, critical thing is you have to know that you need a Savior. But let's go back now and see what he does in verse 1 of chapter 5. Just spin up to Romans chapter 5, verse 1. He says this, Therefore... Being justified. How? What do you mean? Being declared not guilty. How? By faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So literally, the gospel of peace would be when we accept God's grace by faith. You know what happens to all of these things? They're paid for. In fact, look at the things that he's done in those positions. First of all, did we love him? No, he loved us first. He died for us. In fact, verse 8, we see that he commended his love. He showed his love to us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't just tell us about love. He showed us. But then there's that other word that you find in verse, 11, verse 10. So we were enemies. We were actually reconciled. That is to be brought back to God by the death of his son. All of those things literally now change our position with God. Everything changes when you are justified. When you're declared not guilty, guess what happens? You're no longer an enemy with God. God is on your side. Remember what we said? The victory has been won through Jesus Christ, but when you accept Jesus Christ through faith, the grace that God unfolded because of what Christ did, then literally you are in him and he is in you. The, the power that, that broke Satan's back is literally dwelling within you. But you are in a different position now. You have peace with God. Now, I do want to say something. If, if you are on this side of the ledger and you're weak, unrighteous, you're a sinner, you're unjustified, that is, you are guilty, and you're an enemy of God, you should be concerned. You should be worried. You should have really said, now what? That's a great place to be. And you say, is it good? It's, if you don't know Jesus, you should be worried. It's not a sin to worry until you've accepted Christ. Because after you've accepted Christ, guess what the reason is to worry? zippity doo nothing, nada. There's nothing to worry about because you are at peace with God. Does anything else matter? Romans chapter 8 says, 
You cannot be separated from the love of God if you're in Christ. And that is literally the idea that he is saying you must have your feet, putting on the whole armor of God, you must have your feet shod with the gospel of peace. Because once you're saved, that's as great a foundation, a great of footing and stability you could possibly imagine because it's done. There's nothing more to be concerned with in the sense of your future or where you're standing. It's based upon what? It's based upon Jesus Christ. That's your foundation. Now, remember what we said in Romans chapter 13? You were putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. This is literally putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. Just think of how stable you can be when you understand the fact that you are at peace with God. Let's go ahead and let's turn to 2 Corinthians for a moment, chapter 5, verse 19. It says it just a little bit differently. Verse 18. Actually, we start in verse 17. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are come new. Now, he says that because we've written these down on the board. Prior to Jesus Christ, you were weak. You were unrighteous. You were a sinner. You were unjustified. You were guilty. You were an enemy of God. All of those things have passed away. You've become brand new. You are at peace with God. I mean, just, just soak in that for a moment. Ah. You know, how many, and by the way, it's, see, this is where Satan is so sinister, so deceptive, is the fact that he doesn't tell anyone that they're at a fight with God. We're just out to have fun. We're just out to just kind of do our thing. But any time that self exalts itself against God, guess what? It shows that we are at, that we are at war with God. In fact, it says it in Ephesians chapter 2. Let's go back there for a moment. Well, let's see, just a minute before you do that. We didn't read enough, did we? I didn't finish what we were doing. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we read verse 17, but watch verse 18. And all things are of God who hath reconciled us to bring us back to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To it, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. That word we talked about the sense of imputing. Actually, when Jesus Christ died, if you think about it on his ledger, he took on our sin, he paid for it, which he didn't have, and he imputed his righteousness to our account. Our account looked terrible. We had just sinned. We were guilty. Not only did the guilt go away, but we were imputed righteousness, and it was paid in full. We were gained back. What, even at, what Adam and Eve did on that day in the garden, literally that placed humanity at a far distance away from God because the sin separated them. And Jesus Christ... He took care of all of that. And no longer were they at peace. I'm sorry, at enemies with God. We are now at peace with God. I can't think of anything that could give you more stability as you're standing firm before Satan. That is an absolute promise, not because you did, did it, but because God finished it, completed it. And once he says eternal life, he means what he says. That's cool stuff. That's fantastic. You talk about having your shoes uh, shod with the um, gospel of peace. That is a clear picture of it. He's on our side. Um, I'm thinking about, uh, where was I at? Judges 7. What was I going to do? Oh, yeah, I want to show you something. When we are really in the presence of God, it, there's a sense that really gives us a, an invincibility. Let's go all the way back to Judges chapter 7. 
I was thinking of another one as well. As we're going there to Judges, as you're turning to Judges chapter 7, do you remember uh, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, um, the disciples were with them, and obviously they were in a minority, were probably around 500 or more men that came with Judas Iscariot to the Garden of Gethsemane, and they were looking for Jesus. They're going to arrest him. This is the night that they were living for. And he literally, they approach him, and Jesus says, they said, who, where's Jesus of Nazareth? And he says, well, I am he. Who, what, what do you need? And it was, it, the Bible says that they all fell down. Just in the very word of what he said, who I am, the power in that was, must have been just amazing. Now, do you remember Peter in one of the Gospels? They are in a significant sense of minority. If you think about it, there was just that circle of apostles, which they've been sleeping most of the time. Okay, and here come 500 plus men to take Jesus and they literally all fall down at the very mention of his name when he says it. And when they get up, what does Peter do? He's swinging a sword. He's aiming for the neck and he gets an ear. And the guy's name was Malchus. I think Malchus ducked. Okay, but now why would Peter do that? What would make you if you're 12 against 500 and these are soldiers? These are the real deal. I'll tell you why. When you're in the presence of Jesus Christ, you literally feel invincible. Now, God, now Jesus said to Peter, he said, no, no, not now. This is not the right time. Put your sword away. Okay? But did you see how Peter responded? He didn't run. When you're in Jesus' presence, it's amazing how much strength and power you literally have. And the key is, how do we stay in his presence? How do we stay focused on him? Because that's where you have the strength that literally indwells you. And the word of God of which you're taking in, the spirit makes that grander and bolder. And here's another one. We're going to, as you turn to Joshua chapter 7, you remember this story about Gideon. Gideon had about 32,000 men. Gideon was kind of a, he was kind of shy. Okay? He wasn't your leader's leader. He wasn't a type A kind of personality. In fact, he was working on the thrashing floor, and he was so sick and tired of the Midianites taking all their grain, all of their harvest, all of their stuff, and he's kind of whining about it. And God comes, and he says, you know what, I want you to take, we're, we're going we're to go beat the Midianites, I want you to lead these people. Not me. So then he does the fleece thing. You've heard that. Did you put out your fleece? He did it two different ways. He was trying not to have God lead him. He says, well, let's put it out, and if it's wet in the morning, then I know that you mean what you said. And it was. So he said, let's try it another way. Let's put the fleece out. If it's dry in the morning, then I'll know that you've spoken. And it was. And he still says, oh, I don't know. I don't know. Right? <laughs> That's where it all comes from. You put a fleece out. You're, you're testing the waters, if you will. That came from that, from that exact situation and particular incident. Well, he's got 32,000 men. And the Midianites probably have 150,000 men. This doesn't sound good, right? So he's a little nervous. And God comes on board and says, I'll tell you what. Gideon, I want you to, make, I want you to get this right. You have way too many men. I have what? <laughs> I could just, whoa, 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 whoa. My count says, I, yeah, you have too many men. So what, do you mind if we read a little bit of this? Let's go to, let's go to Judges chapter 7. Judges chapter 7. And we'll start in verse 1. Verse 1. We'll just kind of cruise through. I don't know if I'm starting right, but this will work. Then Jerubbabel, which who is Gideon? That was his other name, Gideon. And all the people that were with him rose up early and pitched beside the well of Herod, so that the host of the Midianites were on the north side of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said unto Gideon, The people that are with thee are too many for me to give thee the Midianites into their hands. 
lest Israel vaunt itself themselves against me, saying, Mine own hand hath saved me. That is interesting, isn't it? God doesn't want you to have, to have confidence in your own strength. That is through the whole Bible. It's everywhere. As soon as you have, if you have, that's called pride. Oh, yeah, we did it. We did it. Have you ever seen even, I, I th- look at some of the, you know, those after sports events, you know, some great, yeah, we did it. We're tougher. We're, that, that just doesn't smack well, does it? And God says, you have too many people. I want the victory to be very clearly mine. The glory needs to come to me, God. So he said, we're going to get rid of some of those guys. Let's watch how he does it. Uh, show therefore go now therefore go to proclaim in the ears of the people verse 3 saying whosoever is fearful and afraid let him return and depart early from the mount gilead and there returned of the people 20 and 2000 and there remained 10000 now now let's do our math on the board we actually use this example some time back but so he's got 32000 God says, no, no, that's, that's way too many because they're going to think that they've won the victory. So he says, anybody that's afraid... By the way, did you see how important that is to what we're talking about today? Anybody that's afraid or worried? How good are they on the battle? Not very good. In fact, that's why we're talking about defeat. If you're slipping and sliding and have no stability, that's what worry, anxiety, and fear does. He says, those of you that are fearful and worried, why don't you go home? So 22,000 take off, Okay. Uh, what, do you think, what do you think Mr. Gideon's doing right now? He's melting down. He's probably a little bit afraid right now, right? So he's got 10,000 left. And he said, well, uh, well, I guess we got 10,000. I, I don't know. It's God's deal, right? Okay, let's watch what happens. Let's keep going. So everybody's kind of thinking about this for a second. Let's go back and get my glasses on. And the Lord said unto Gideon, verse 4, the people are yet too many. Uh, bring them down unto the water, and I will try them for thee from there. And it shall be that of whom I say unto you, this shall go with thee, the same shall go with thee. And whomsoever I say unto thee, this, this, this shall not go with thee, the same shall not go. So he brought down the people unto the water. The Lord said unto Gideon, Everyone that lappeth of the water with his tongue as a dog lappeth him, shalt thou set by himself. Likewise, everyone that boweth down upon his knees to drink. And the number of them that lapped, putting their hands to their mouth, were three hundred men. And all the rest of the people bowed down upon their knees to drink water. And the, Lord got, and the Lord said unto Gideon, By the three hundred men that lapped, will I save you, and deliver the Midianites into thine hand, and let all the other people go every place to his own place. So now we go down and we have this little water test. So 9,700 failed, whatever that means. I mean, I, I don't, so you were one of those, but the point, of, that's really sloppy. Um, the point of the matter is, is did these 9,700 do anything wrong? I don't think so. That wasn't at all what God was trying to do, was to disqualify. What God wanted to do is he wanted to just 300 men. He's got 300. Now, again, I can't stress this enough. I don't know what 32,000 men look like, but I'm thinking of... How many people live in Butte? Plus or minus? About 30,000. About 30,000. Okay? Take all that happens to Butte, and that's, that's Gideon's army in the morning. <laughs> By the afternoon... He's got half a Sheridan. <laughs> Woo! I feel good about this. What do you think he's doing? He wants to learn. <laughs> there, there, there would be like, now what? I don't, you know, God, as I think about it, I think I want to leave too. Let's have 299. <laughs> you can do it with them. You can do it with 299. If you can do it with 300, you can do it with one less, right? 
<laughs> I mean, I got to be honest. It, it would be the same for us. Have you ever been in a, and I'm going to not even say a battle, but some kind of life circumstance where you feel just grossly outnumbered? There's too much debt. There's too much stuff. There's too much this. There's too much health problem. You could go on and on and on, and you feel totally overwhelmed. And you know why that's good? Because then it's up to God to get the victory, and it's not up to you. It's not the doctors. It's not the bankers. It's not the power. It's not the politicians. It's not Donald Trump. It's about God. It's about God. You got 300. (laughs) Now, you know what happened. But just so God could encourage him to know what was going to happen, let's keep reading. So the people took victuals in their hands, verse 8, and their trumpets. And he sent all the rest of Israel, every man onto his tent, and retained those 300 men. And the host of Midian was beneath him in the valley. It came to pass the same night that the Lord said unto him, Arise, get thee down unto the host, for I have delivered it into thine hand. But if thou fear to go down, go thou with Fura, thy servant, down to the host. Now, get that, mark that for a moment. Now, you're going you're gonna to see exactly where Gideon was at in the sense of confidence. He says, I want you to go down to the camp, the ones that I'm going to give to you. But if you're fearful, take him with you. So, so the question is, is he going to take him with him? Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay, so let's watch. Um, and thou shalt hear what they say, and afterwards shall thine hands be strengthened to go down into the host. Then went he down with, sure enough, he took his servant into the outside of the armed men that were in the host. The Midianites and the Amalekites and all the children of the east lay along the valley like grasshoppers for multitude. Their camels were without number, as the sand by the seaside for multitude. And when Gideon was come, behold, there was a man that told a dream unto his fellow and said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and lo, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the host of Midian and came onto a tent and smote it, and it fell and overturned it, and the tent lay along. His fellow answered and said, This is nothing else to save the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. For into his hand hath God delivered Midian and all the host. And it was so when Gideon heard the telling of the dream, the interpretation thereof, that he worshipped and returned into the host of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord hath delivered into your hand the host of Midian. Isn't that cool? It's fantastic. That is fantastic. You know what he went on in that from that moment forward was literally his feet were shod with the gospel of peace. Because he went confidence. Now that's what I really want you to know. That's a word that should come. When you have your shoes shod with the gospel of peace, that should give you a great deal of confidence. Someone that is confident is not worrying. He's not, he or she is not tied about anxiety or fear of any kind. You are standing firmly, stable, and confidently. That's when the armor is all put on. That's who we should be. That's literally what God has given to us. Not because of that it's us, it's because it's his. And you know what happened. They did win. There was a fantastic victory. And God did get the glory. Amazing, amazing story. Now, the other thing is, is that uh, because of the fact that we're in Jesus Christ, there really literally is no circumstance that should steal our peace. I want you to go back and see how he's described even. Again, Romans chapter 13, verses 11 through 14. We read it again today. We'll probably read it as we go through this study. What are we to do? We're to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh. Okay? Let's go to Ephesians chapter 2 now for a moment. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. This is the same epistle that that, uh, Paul is writing in the sense of being prepared, putting on the whole armor of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. Watch him describe for us... Literally, Jesus Christ. So we'll start in verse 13. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you, who sometimes were far off, 
were made close or nigh by the blood of Christ. That's exactly right. It was the blood of Jesus Christ that brought you and that saved you. Look at verse 14. For he is our peace, who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. Literally, Jesus Christ is our peace. Now, peace brings hope, it brings confidence, it brings certainty that victory is possible. Turn with me to the book of John. Let's look at a couple of uh, verses there that Jesus actually spoke while he was on earth. You know, for those disciples, I think for them to, to go back and see the things that he had written, to remember those things after he was gone, must have brought them a great deal of confidence and victory. John chapter 14, let's look at verse 27. Verse 27. <clears throat> Uh, well, actually, let's, let's take one step back and look at verse 26. When he left, when Jesus left, uh, it says, But the Comforter, the Comforter, that's a great word, which is the Holy Ghost, he spells it out, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and shall bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Verse 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Now, we're not talking about the peace in the absence of conflict, okay? There, it's, it's much, much grander and, and, and bigger than that when we're talking about the peace with God, particularly, and then even the peace of God that is yours when you are a Christ. And then turn over to chapter 16, verse 33. John 16, verse 33 And he goes on one more time and says this. These things have I spoken unto you that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Turn back to Luke for a moment because Jesus is talking about in this particular episode of the latter days. As we get closer to to his coming back to the tribulation period, which will be something that I cannot describe for you adequately. The scriptures um, and how it speaks of it is it will be a terrible, terrible time. But let's look at Luke chapter 21, verse 26. And we're just diving in here because he's talking about that apocalyptic discourse. But as we look at this one verse, let's just see how it describes it by Jesus' own words. It says in verse 26, Men's hearts failing them for fear. And for looking after those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of earth of heaven shall be shaken. Think of that. Uh, Satan is always behind fear. I even look at the last, uh, I'm going to say what, the last uh, 12 to 16 months uh, through this, this universal, this global pandemic, for lack of a better word. The fact of the matter is I cannot believe what the real pandemic was, was fear. Fear ruled the world. At every level. And we're actually fearing things that we don't have to fear. There are things that we should be concerned about. But to the level of fear that literally gripped gripped the world, Satan is behind fear. He wants to destroy you with fear. Because if you have fear in your heart, you will have anxiety and worry. And I will show you that Christians cannot function adequately. In fact, they will be slipping and sliding all over the place. There's no peace where there's worry and anxiety. My sister had a, years ago when she was just growing up and, uh, you know, in high school or something, and she had a, had a poster on her, on her room that said, who says worrying doesn't help? 98% of what I worry about never happens anyway. That's exactly true. Isn't it? So much of the things that we worry about never take place. But in the meantime, you know what it's done to us? It's made us slip and slide around. We have no foundation, no stability in our Christian life. It makes us fall down. 
It makes us doubt. It makes us all of the things that Satan wants us to do to bring those three. And you know what? When we're doubting, the three avenues, you know what those are? Lust of flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. All three of those avenues have a direct route right through the gateway to the inner part of your soul. Because you know what? When you're fearing and you're full of worry and anxiety, it's like an open gateway. He has you. That's how he started with Eve. That's how he starts with everybody. Now, he can't get you as a Christian. He can't steal you. He doesn't own you. He didn't die for you. In fact, the only thing Satan has done for you is lied to you. It's the only thing he's ever done. Jesus Christ died for you. He lied to you. But he, can't, but he can take your testimony. He can take the value that God wants to have you and the effectiveness of what you're doing on earth in this life. But he can't take you. But he can mess with everything that happens there out. He can mess with your family. He can mess with a whole lot of things. But I'm going to tell you something. When you're tied up in fear and anxiety, he's got a first. And now what did we call that? That's a beachhead. When you're fearful and full of anxiety, you have let, or lay, let him have a place somewhere in your life for him to do business from. Don't let him have a place. Fear needs to be cast out. Remember, you have, the, you have peace with God. And literally, once you have peace with God, then what's spoken of the peace of God becomes yours. You now have the peace of God that can be, which was spoken in, remember, we're in Philippians chapter 4, verse 7. The peace of God, which passes all understanding. There, you can't even understand this. There's people that I know and that you know that literally, no matter what has happened to them, they just seem to be, you know what, God's, God's in charge. I'm okay. I'm going to take it one day at a time. I'm going to get through it. I'm going to continue to pray to my God. I'm going to reach out. I'm going to be everything he wants me to be. He can take care of the rest. That's peace that passes all understanding. You know what that person is? Very, very stable. Very, very stable. There's no doubts. Now, again, there's no level of perfection here. That's not my point. But my point is, is we can always go to another level because of what we have in Jesus Christ. When we say that we're worrying, we have anxiety, we're saying this. God cannot be trusted. Think of that for a second now. Have it, no, don't raise your hands. But how many of you have worried in the last week? You're laughing. Okay, that was like raising your hand. But that's okay. That's what we're saying, though, isn't it? We are saying God cannot be trusted. And how did we get peace with God? Because we trusted what God did for us through Jesus Christ. And if he would literally send the Son, the Son of God the second in the Trinity, to literally put on human form, to be humbled to the sense of a servant, and he died for us so that we could be saved. Why should we be concerned about the little stuff from here to get to eternity? He's got it covered. Now, it may not be the way we thought it was going to be. That happens a lot in my own life. But the point of the matter is there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God if we're in him. See, those are things that Satan doesn't want you to remember. He doesn't want you to read the Word of God. He doesn't want you to be filled with truth. And when you don't trust God, I will tell you, you are discouraged. And we are unthankful. Did you see, did you see uh, even an Eve? Again, I'm, I'm using that because it's just the, the techniques are so good. Show me somebody that's caught up in fear and anxiety, and I will show you absolutely without question there's something missing in their life. You know what it is? Thankfulness. You can't be thankful and worrying at the same time. It's impossible because you're worrying about something you don't have or something you need. And rather than thinking about what God has supplied, now think of this. Let's go back to the Garden of Eden, and here you have Eve, and Satan has come up, and he said, did, did God really keep that one tree from you? And I can't tell you because I wasn't there. I don't know. The significance and the magnificence of the Garden of Eden must have been overwhelming. I mean, perfect in every way. Why didn't she say, you know, we really don't need that tree. We're okay. 
We're actually very, very well off. In fact, in the afternoon, in fact, speaking of which, this afternoon we're going to have a little walk with God again because we, we have a fellowship with him in the afternoons. We walk and talk together. That's pretty cool. I like walking and talking with God. Right? I'd actually, I'm, I can't wait to try that, actually. And to think of that, now that must have been some kind of experience. To have those days before them of walking and talking and visiting and literally through the coolness of the afternoon with God. And that was the last day was the day that they threw him out because they wanted to be like God. Can you imagine what that would have been like? We don't know because we've always been on the wrong side of it. But Adam and Eve knew it was like to walk with God. Whoa. But when we're worrying, we can't be trusting. We can't be trusting. Well, when we're trusting, we can't be worrying. Worry, worry derails us from focusing on what is really important. Also, when you're worried and anxious, you cannot be fruitful or productive. And living in that peace gives you firm stability. Let's close by looking at uh, Isaiah chapter 26 in the Old Testament. It's a verse that I would recommend that you make part of your memory. Uh, Isaiah chapter 26 and verse 3. It's one that uh, I've, over the last several years, have come to really... Uh, in, be endeared with uh, Isaiah chapter 26 and verse 3 thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee if you want peace fully focus and, and be trusting in God that's what peace is made of is trusting in God so, just as we, as we bring, we went through three, we have the belt of truth, which is a commitment to being prepared, uh, living in truth, being very uh, focused on truth. Uh, the second one is putting on the breastplate of righteousness. That is literally putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, in, in practice, putting on what we have positionally in him, and that imputed righteousness which he's given to us has given us the power to literally become holy in the sense of living. Not perfect, but we continue to work towards the sense of more and more sanctification. Uh, today, looking at being shod with the preparation, the readiness of the gospel of peace. Um, this here gives you, so, this one here to me is still as important as any of them. And not one of those is literally given, this is the most important part of the armor. This is what is important is the fact that we're to put on not two pieces of armor, not half the armor, the whole armor of God. But I will just say this. I think the most vulnerable, and maybe it's because I cannot walk across a carpet with bare feet. I cannot do that. I have to have shoes on. I'm a, I'm a shoe guy, right? And I watch these little grandkids, and they walk across the yard, and I just, ah, there's shivers go up my spine. That's not right. That's not right. <laughs> all, all kinds of stuff, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a shoe guy. And, and, and that's what makes this very, very significant is the fact that stability, peace, comfort, foundation, all of those things comes from the gospel which puts you at peace with God. Let's, with that, let's pray. Father God, thank you for the day. Thank you for your love and care. Thank you for the peace with you. Thank you that Satan cannot win because you have won already. Thank you for giving us the same power that defeated him that lives within us if we've trusted Christ. Thank you for the power that is ours because of 
Jesus Christ winning and ruling and reigning. And today, he is at the right hand of God, is pictured as being our advocate. When we do sin, when we do fail to put on the whole armor of God, when we fail to put on the breastplate of righteousness, making choices one at a time, when Satan accuses us, because he is the accuser, Jesus Christ is acting on our behalf, saying, I paid for that sin. He is mine. She is mine. He will be waiting for you to confess, to repent of that sin, to regain in fellowship so that you can get back up and get going. If there's fear and there's worry and there's anxiety in your life, then I can very clearly and confidently say that there is no peace. That's not the way Jesus Christ would want it to be. Trusting him, giving him everything that you are, allowing him to have full control of your mind, your heart, your emotions your intellect, all of those, when you turn them over to him and trusting him with whatever condition it is, we know that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Nothing when we're in Christ Jesus. What a safe place to be. What a place for us to have stability, just as those Roman soldiers would have had those hobnails in the bottom of their shoes to give them steadfast stability. That's what the peace of God should do for us. Nothing to doubt, nothing to fear, Nothing to be anxious or worried about. Father, may we focus on you just as Peter in your presence, Jesus Christ's presence, very clearly. And when Gideon had a full understanding of how important it was to trust in God and he alone, 300 men could have taken on the world if God is in it. Father, the situations that may come up in each one of our lives this week, we would ask that you would help us to get it in the right frame of mind, getting in in tune with your will and allowing you to do what you need to do and for us to put on the whole armor of God, watching out for all of those arrows, all of those things of doubt, which we'll be talking about potentially next week. Having our shoes, our feet shod with the gospel of peace, putting on the belt of truth, living committed to truth. Father, all of these aspects of the armor that you provided, we thank you for. Show us how we can put them on better, Remain resilient, prepared, resistant to the, to the devil. And Father, it tells us that he will flee from us. Go with these dear ones today, Father, the journey that they will be on this week, the steps they will take, that, they would, that you would guide them and direct them each step of their way. We know they will come in contact with people that you have designed for specifically for them and their life's journey. May they speak truth. May their lives show that Jesus Christ is Lord and King. May you give them peace this week, Father. May they think on those things according to Philippians chapter 4 that are lovely, that are pure. All of those other things, Father, that our minds should be wrapped around and be focused upon. For therein, we will get peace even more intimately than we can even imagine. Now, Father, go with us. We want to glorify you. We thank, thank you for the encouragement you've given us through the word. We lift up and praise your name. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen.